easier to take than the one that follows it. The one that follows it, Revelation 16, we'll take up next week. And it is a dark moment in all of human history. It is a hard word. And uh, for those of us who have spent time there already, it's a little bit, uh, a little bit like going to a doctor's appointment that you know there's going to be bad news. And yet, before we get there, this is what we find in Revelation 15. A reminder of God's deliverance and his faithfulness to his people. A reminder of God's grace and how he has shown that time and time and time again. Not just to us, but to the people of the Old Testament as well. This is why we have taken up this study of Revelation as a general rule. To make sure that we understand the conclusion of all the matters when we are gathered together around the throne of God, it will not be all Baptists. Oh, heavens. Uh, it's a good thing it's not church conference tonight. There may be a motion made to uh, release me. You heard the story about uh, a man who died and went to heaven. And uh, when they were walking past all the glorious things the angel turned to him and told him to be quiet and step softly past this one particular door. When they got past it, they, he asked what was in there. And he said, that's the Baptists. They think they're the only ones here. I don't believe there's any truth to that, but it might feel that way sometimes. So reality is when we see chapters like Revelation 15, we are definitely confronted with the idea that we are most certainly not the only ones there. Let me read it for us in its entirety one more time. I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of his name standing beside the sea of glass with harps in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. A couple of things for free that aren't in this notation, these, these questions that I have for you. I want you to notice the present tense nature in verse 3. They sing the song of Moses. Not they sung, not they will sing. It's as if the opportunity for time and and uh, space has been folded on top of each other. It sounds kind of funny all of a sudden. Am I 
Are my ears playing out on me? Yeah, it sounds okay? Huh? It's louder than it was? Oh, good. Well, I'm glad for that, I guess. I want you to see this as present tense, though, and realize that the time and space problems that we have do not exist in heaven. After I sent this off to my friend Jeff, I realized just uh, that I would have rather had said that. I want to make it clear in, in, in what I'm saying. The time and space issues where one day follows another, followed by still yet another, and one year follows another, followed by still yet another, that kind of linear thinking doesn't exist necessarily the same way in heaven. It is as if time and space have folded in on one another and present tense is always the rule of the day. And why is that true? Because God is timeless and those who stand in his presence are likewise eternal. This is a statement that bears remarking because it is so different than our own experience. They sing the song of Moses. This is a consistent thing. It's happening as it were right now. Well, then why don't I hear it? Why don't I experience it? Why don't I see it? Well, that's a good question. And it sort of lends itself to something that I said this morning. Worship is something we are, not something we do. And that brings us to the first question. What is the song of Moses in Revelation 15, 1 to 3? What is the song of Moses? This phrase, song of Moses, is something we don't find in very many places in the New Testament, rare are the occasions where Moses is depicted with a song at all. And yet, in the New Testament, I mean, and yet, here it is. Revelation 15 makes it clear. This is the song of Moses. What can we know about it? We can say this. It was a song likely used in the early church as a hymn. Not unlike what you'd find in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We believe that's one of the early hymns as well. It appears in Revelation, as we have it here, and two possible parallels in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 32. God deals with Israel for her unfaithfulness. It's a song of punishment. God's going to make it right. He's going to bring wrath on those who deserve it, and he will bring his righteousness to bear. Likewise, Exodus 15. God's punishment for the wicked and deliverance of his people. When we see these two elements, it is easy for us to hold them in tension as if they are not the same idea. And yet, for the reading that we've just had, it seems clear that those singing the song of the Lamb and the song of Moses have no such issue. They are complementary ideas, not conflicting. The idea that God's justice and God's holiness are two sides of the same coin, is clearly in view. Likewise, God's deliverance of his people from these problems, from these challenges. Let us praise the Lord then that these two things do belong together, even if they unsettle us some. Let's move on to the next slide because I want you to see through Revelation 15 and 16, there seems to be an Exodus motif, an Exodus theme paralleling the experience of the Israelites in the Old Testament and the deliverance of the saints and martyrs in Revelation. This, this moment in time, it seems, is one that is 
a little challenging for us because maybe we've never thought of ourselves as caught like the Israelites were, pinched between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. I, I mentioned that this, this morning when I was talking uh, to the chapel group. This moment, though, is unlike any other moment that we have elsewhere in Scripture besides what's in Revelation 15. For the moment when the Lord splits the sea is one of the most remarkable transcendent times that we have anywhere in Scripture. Transcendent. A wonderful and powerful word indicating God breaking into human history to accomplish his purposes. It's so significant that in this particular room, we've dedicated not one of these beautiful windows to it, but two. Over here on my left, your right, you'll see there are two windows. One where the waves are bent this way, one where the waves are bent that way. This is the Exodus story. Now, if you're sitting on that side and it's hard to see, maybe you want to come up when we're done. If you're online, we'll do our best to take some pictures and put them up for you. These two windows, though, are complementary, and it wouldn't make a lick of sense if we had separated them. I'm glad somebody had the wisdom to put them together. For it is a transcendent mo moment, and Moses certainly recognized that best of all. For when he arrives on the other side, when he gets to the other side of the Red Sea and the waters fold in, and Pharaoh's army doesn't make it through, they recognize the delivering hand of God. They couldn't help but sing. Rejoicing in Revelation, I'm sorry, in Exodus 15 was simply too much to hold in. Likewise, for the people of God who are delivered, pinched between the attacks of Satan on one side and the burden of the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet on the other side, the deliverance of God will come at just the right time, and he will make a way where there seems to be no way, just like he did then. So this song of Moses, it parallels Exodus 15 far better than Deuteronomy 32. The two Old Testament pieces are complementary, but if we must choose only one, let us rejoice that we can choose Exodus 15. It speaks to the same kind of deliverance that the people of God will find when they arrive, the presence of God. Let us press on to what happens at Armageddon. You can't come to this portion without dealing with Armageddon, and we'll take it up again next week when we talk, with, uh, when we talk about uh, Revelation 16. Armageddon is named only once, in the pages of Scripture, you'll see it at Revelation 16, 16. What, what happens at Armageddon? Most of us know, but let's spell it out just to be clear. Armageddon is described as a battle, but it's more accurate to speak of it as a war or at least a broad campaign. In other words, not just one event, but rather several of them in a broader context. Here are things that will play into that. Consider these things. There are various as yet unidentified armies that will muster at Armageddon's northern end. Specifically, Gog and Magog, if we bring Ezekiel and his prophecy into view here. 
Ezekiel makes clear that there will be two who will come from the east, Gog and Magog, who will sweep through and they will bring their vengeance down upon all those in their path and will incite a terrible war. Who are Gog and Magog? Well, I'll tell you what. If you know, come see me at the conclusion of this study. We'll get together and conspire to write a book and we'll sell a million copies and split the proceeds. How about that? We don't know who they are. That's why it's listed the way I wrote it, as yet unidentified. Who are these armies? We don't know. Now, the easy thing to say is it's China. They're from the east. Well, that's true if you start in Israel. However, the beautiful thing about the east is it's always there. It's not like north and south, where eventually if you go far enough north, you'll start going south. East isn't like that. East can still be east even when you're east. So there are things that we can't answer. In other words, any place on the face of God's green earth is still qualified. So don't presume anything on the part of God and say he has to do it this way. He doesn't have to do anything except be who he is. This much we can say for sure. They will gather at Armageddon's northern end, up at least near where Mount Carmel is. Secondly, Jerusalem will be attacked. Zechariah 12, verses 1 to 3, make that clear. Third, Jesus will return to the Mount of Olives. For those of you that may have forgotten, the Mount of Olives stands guard over the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem. It is generous to call it a mount, at least for most of the world. For us, we would call it a mountain, not just a mount. It is more than a high spot, but it is not a mountain in the same sense that Mount Hermon is. And yet it is here that Jesus has promised to return. The armies gathered against him will be slain by the breath of his own mouth. Thus says Revelation 19. The prophecy of his return is in Zechariah chapter 14. And the suggestion that it will take place there will be in 2 Thessalonians 2. Described in Revelation 16, 12, the kings of the east, whoever they might be, will be gathered to Israel for this final and suicidal war. To allow their passage, it seems likely God will supernaturally dry up the Euphrates River. Revelation 9, 13 through 19. Revelation uh, 9 speaks to that, but this is one of the pieces that we really struggle with because how do you dry up the Euphrates River? For those of you that may uh, not have, have experienced it, let me just tell you, the Euphrates River is on par with our Mississippi. To think of it running dry is just more than the mind can conceive of. How is that even possible? That's why I've notated it the way I have. Supernaturally, this will be an act of God. There is another option, and that is, Bridges, or perhaps they will use aircraft to cross that. Either way, the enemy comes from the east. Many have associated this with China, Russia, or North Korea, but I want to caution you, Scripture is not clear. Perhaps it's because the entities that will yet come from the east do not yet exist, or perhaps they didn't exist in ways that we would understand them then. I want to encourage you, to have a capacity to be flexible in your understanding of Revelation. Here's what I mean. I've met some men and women 
who have set their whole identity about revelation on this means that and this means that. To that, I want you to go back to the start of this year and the very first of the five at five that we did on this topic. One of the things we talked about is apocalyptic literature is inherently hidden. There are symbols in apocalyptic literature that we may or may not have the key to understanding. And if we don't understand it, but we believe we do, then maybe we set ourselves up for disappointment. This is why I encourage you, stay flexible. Here's why. What if the army isn't a human army in the, at all? What if it's not a geopolitical army? What if it's not an army of tanks and, and planes and bombs? But what if it's a demonic army in the first place? The part I want you to focus on is not the identity of who those armies will be. They'll identify themselves with or without my knowledge. Regardless of who they are, let us rejoice that their demise is certain. That's why I've never understood these people who get so excited about, this is who that has to be. Okay, so we know who the losers are. So what? The better part is we know who wins. I want you to anchor yourself there, not on the other side. Now, I don't want to speak poorly of any, any, any of my brothers or sisters who have spent enormous time studying eschatology because they are well-reasoned and well-informed. I have no doubt about that. And yet, there are some things that we just don't know. And the identity of these armies and what happens to them isn't something that we can be clear of. Likewise, for the kings of the East, who are they? Yeah, see me later. I'll tell you when we're on our way to heaven. Speculation is a fun game, but let's leave it for what it is. Why gather at Armageddon? This is a question that always comes up. Let's be clear. We don't know. Some of you are already frustrated with that answer, and I don't blame you, but it's the best answer we have. We will suggest some elements to it. At the conclusion of the tribulation, somewhere between Revelation 16 and 19, these armies of the world will gather at Armageddon. Why? Scripture never fully answers. We'll answer with a few options. One, some have suggested it is to battle the Antichrist. After years of enduring his merciless reign, where we'll have tired of his cruelty and rise up against him. By this time, because of the bold judgments and the trumpet judgments, the world's environment will be largely ruined. and More than half of the world's population will be dead. The world economy will be in a shambles and people will demand a change. That's one possibility for why Armageddon. While this view certainly makes sense, the kingdoms gathered here will be under charge of the beast. Surely they won't fight amongst themselves. But then again, maybe they will. We don't know, but we know this. God still wins. Here's a second better option. Gathering allows for a full-out final assault on Israel and the Jewish people. 
Satan's vendetta against the people of God will come to this, a fever pitch. This war reflects a last-ditch effort to destroy God and his people. You might say, well, that sounds awful dark, doesn't it, though? And yet, perhaps we would do well to recognize that was Satan's plan all along. Go with me back to the Garden of Eden. What happened there? Well, we know Adam and Eve were deceived. Take a deeper dive, though, and ask, why? Was it just so they'd be thrown out of the garden? No, it's so they would be condemned to the same kind of eternity that Satan has. He's known from the beginning that this was his destiny. So when we we see Armageddon, make no mistake about it, friends, the idea behind all of it is that God's people will be taken down with him. With Satan, I mean. If we receive Revelation 14, 19 through 20, literally, the entire nation of Israel will be engulfed at the war at Armageddon. Revelation 14, 19 through 20 suggests just such a thing. We talked about that last week. Let us recognize, though, that the nation of Israel is not limited to the confines of the geopolitical designation we have on our maps. Many people will make much of 1948 when Israel was reconstituted, and rightfully so. I can't imagine how excited my grandparents were when that happened. And I know there are many who circled on their calendars 2018. 2018, 70 years after the nation of Israel was reconstituted, as if that was the designated time. I read some high-minded arguments that God had to do something in 2018 significant, especially around this time of year, with Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, two very special holidays on the Jewish calendar. These always seemed to fall this way. When it came and went, there was no shortage of disappointment. Likewise, for 1988, in my, my office, I have a small book that was sent to the first church that I served as youth pastor. I was a, a sophomore at DBU when I started there. And we got a little booklet, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Must Return in 1988. That's interesting all by itself. The curious part about that book is if you flipped it over, it was a book about Jewish culture and and writings. So it was two books in one, literally. Quite exciting. I've kept it, but only as a curiosity. The brother who printed those believed faithfully that 40 years after 1948, God would do something significant and would do it at Armageddon. Regardless of that, here's where I really want you to go. Satan knows at the conclusion of the war, he's lost. And his eternal destiny is final. His desire before he goes is to take as many or as much as he can with him. That's always been who he was. Thus, the gathering at Armageddon is the final attack on God and his people. Let us conclude with the fifth and final question today. Does the event, and I realize I have a typo, it's not supposed to be does, do the events, forgive that and correct it in your notes, will you? 
Do the events of Revelation 15.1 exhaust God's wrath? Some have suggested that because of the way Revelation 15.1 reads, God's wrath will be fully spent as a result of it. As God's wrath is vented through the bold judgments in chapter 16, the full measure of his anger is spent and therefore abated. As if it is, has an exhaustible supply and it can be poured out all at once. This misses, however, that there is still yet a future judgment ahead for those who are outside of Christ and deserving of God's wrath. The best example is Revelation 18. There, Satan, the beast, and the false prophet are all cast into the lake of fire along with all those whose names are not to be found in the book of life. So does Revelation 15 exhaust God's wrath or express it? It expresses it in its fullest form thus far. We got you a bonus one today. The sixth question, and I think you, just by the nature of our conversation so far, you will answer this without me. Is there a parallel between the sea of glass and fire in Revelation 15 and the Red Sea of Exodus 14? 1940, right just as the Second World War was getting underway, a German scholar, Martin Kittel, proposed this idea. Since that connection is not made, however, it's just speculation. And yet, I would hope that by now, after having spent the last 30 minutes hearing me, hearing me about this, you would say, maybe so. Maybe so. Thus, the connection between God delivering his people in Exodus 15 and God delivering his people in Revelation 15 belong together. All right, my friends, that's all I have. Now it's your turn. My friend Katie has her microphone, and uh, we are not to be afraid. Test. Yes. Your, your statement about the uh, time yes. early on there. Yeah. How, how would that sort of reconcile, reconcile with the, the idea of eternity? If, if we're living in always present, how can there be something after that? Or So um, your question is a good one, Bill, and I appreciate it. Uh, Look at 15.7 with me, the last few words. Full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. That is a phrase that we find several times in the New Testament. Uh, and it's one that we understand how to translate, but not what it means. The idea of eternity is more than our minds can conceive of in, in many respects. Uh, at what point does eternity begin? And how would we know that it ended even if it did? 
So the reason I didn't make more of this in our questions is because these are questions we can't answer. In other words, um, how do you have an eternity if there's no markers of time? Yeah, that, I, I don't know. I just know that one of the things that we, we recognize about God is his timelessness. He stands above time, even if Christ stands within it. And because he stands above time, time has no measure or meaning for him. Think of it as in, in terms of, of levels. We operate on this level, the human, worldly, earthly level. And that's what we understand. And we measure time in hours and days, and longer in years and decades. Uh, however, um, God is not on this plane. Isaiah 55, my ways are not your ways, my ways are higher than yours, right? So he operates on this level. So for him, time looks different because he stands above it. It's not unlike a story that my wife told our son last night about sneaking up a light pole at Hardin-Simmons when she was a student there. I'm going to get her thrown out of school here, get her, her Distinguished Alumni Award thrown out. They snuck up a light pole to sit down with a group of others. It wasn't like she was just up there with some goony-headed guy. Uh, so they snuck up there, and, and my wife said it well, and she said it was so peaceful. We could see any direction we wanted to go. It was just very calming. I, I believe that's because they didn't know what was happening down below. No doubt there were things down below that were upsetting, that were troublesome, that were problematic. Maybe not within their view, but definitely under their feet. Why would time be any different in God's sight? With him there is peace. So when I allow myself to get trapped into time-based thinking about God, then I allow myself no exit. But if I, I resign myself to, I can't understand how eternity can last forever and not be marked by something, then I'm allowing God to have time on his occasion. Now, at what point do those intersect? This is the question that, that I've written several times about in my philosophical moments. My friend Clark Moreland would appreciate this because it really is navel-gazing. Uh, you can't answer that question. The only point where we know God's time and human time meet is at death. Let's just pick on my mom. My mom passed away on March 12th, 2018. That's been five years ago almost four and a half for sure. When, when, when my mom passed, eternity began for her. But did it really? Or did eternity begin in her heart when she was created? Or was it just realized when she died? It's a question we can't answer, but it's one that rings to the, the way you phrased it. So I'm looking for an off-ramp to, to bring this part to an end better oh, than we don't I, know. Since I have a mic. <laughs> <laughs> Please go ahead, Bill. back up a little bit? Yeah. 
Is it 14? I've kind of lost track of how, how many uh, another angels there are. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and back in 14, um, 14, 14, it describes the, uh, uh, he, he was on a white cloud, seated on the cloud, seated on the white cloud, yes, sir. one like a son of man, you established that that was Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So then it goes on to say, uh, there was another angel came out of a temple and called with a loud voice, and he seemed to instruct, give instruction to yes. Jesus, and that, that concept kind of overwhelmed me a little bit. Yes, I don't disagree, Bill. Uh, what do we do with that? Does an angel tell Jesus what to do? Or does, is, have we misidentified who is sitting on the cloud in 14? We don't know. And quite honestly, I skipped over it on purpose last week. Not because I didn't want to talk about it, but because that's a question we, we just don't have good answers to. Uh, I didn't deal with it in the Sunday morning talk. I didn't deal with it on Sunday night because we just don't know. Uh, Revelation doesn't tell us, and uh, we don't know exactly how many angels there are. How many of these angels are repeat angels? Are they the same angels in chapter 4 and 5 as they are in chapters 14 and 15? I don't know. If John knew, he didn't tell us. All right, someone else? Oh, yeah, Clark. Hey. Um, if it's time question, we'll have to talk about that later. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to ask you, and you may not know this either. Um, before the nation of Israel in 1948, so we had, what, 18 centuries of Christianity with where the nation of Israel was not a geopolitical entity. Right. Do people in those times, do Christians think that uh, Armageddon was going to occur in Israel? Or did they think it was somewhere else? That's more of a history question than anything. Yeah. You know, like what did they think about Armageddon before 1948? Yeah, so biblical scholarship like it, uh, uh, for, for one of the, the men who's been most significant for me, Brooke, Brooke Westcott, uh, an Oxford scholar who taught in the early 1900s, late 1800s. Yes, they still believe that it would take place in Israel. Uh, now here's the tricky part. Uh, for, for much of, <clears throat> I can't say that with absolute clarity, for some of the time before the nation of Israel came in and took back the Megiddo Valley, uh, it was used as a dammed up swamp. Uh, those who lived in the region created a, a, a barrier on one end and flooded the valley. They did so for reasons they alone know, I don't know. And yet still, there was the belief that God would somehow use that space to accomplish his purposes in spite of that. So for at least B.F. Westcott, uh, a notable scholar from Oxford, yes, Israel still was that place. And he died before 1948, so he went to his grave believing that. All right, anyone else? Well, my friends, what a joy it is to be with you tonight. Thank you for coming. Thank you for your participation. 
uh, I want to invite you uh, to uh, come and ask questions up here if you didn't want to ask them out loud. I know that can be intimidating. Uh, the most important thing we're doing with this Sunday evening time is giving you a chance to interact. And uh, I think we learn best when we do so. So you are welcome to come and, 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 and ask me up here. If you'd rather call me or email me or text me, then by all means, know that I'm here to serve. Uh, that's the purpose for which God has called me here. Let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Gracious Jesus, thank you for revelation, even the parts that we don't understand. Thank you for what you have done and what you will do. And thank you that we can join the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. We ask Jesus that you would send us out now in the joy and strength of knowing that we are with you and you are with us. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would grant us strength even if we don't understand everything that's happening. Gracious Jesus, we're awfully glad to walk this road with you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here.